The Italians never really embraced the viola da gamba seriously, but the court of Henry VIII was very, very interested, and they sent diplomats to Venice to literally try to, or they did, bring Spanish Jewish musicians to London uh, to fertilize the court with both music and with instruments. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Hi, I'm Joe McHugh. I fell in love with the study of history many years ago when I was in high school because some of my history teachers were gifted storytellers. Whether recounting Hannibal's trek across the Alps with his elephants, Thomas Edison inventing the first light bulb, or Clara Barton attending to wounded soldiers on the killing fields of Antietam, these teachers made the past both engaging and relevant to my own life. While the violin family of instruments enjoys its own rich and varied history, and William Monocle is just the person to help bring that history to life. Bill lives in Salem, Oregon, but for many years he owned a much-respected shop in New York City that specialized in the repair and restoration of high-quality Baroque bowed stringed instruments. Even though I have played the violin for many years, my knowledge of its origin and why it became so popular is sketchy at best. So I decided to drive down to Salem from our home in Olympia, Washington, and have a conversation with Bill. We talked about many things, including how his own family got involved with bowed stringed instruments. The family really based in southern Illinois from England in the 19th century. Uh, Southern Illinois and from there, my father was one of the founding people interested in developing what came to be called industrial arts in secondary and middle schools. And he was at Millersville University in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, uh, where I grew up. And that led after high school to conservatory, and I was planning to become a musician. And I was studying viola uh, with Leonard Mugel in the Philadelphia Orchestra. And I became interested in what was Baroque or early instruments and early music. And there was nothing written. And um, in working uh, with, with Leonard Mogel, and I needed, obviously, a better viola. So we went to William Menig in Philadelphia and met Bill and started asking him about instruments and, and instrument making and all the rest of those things. And it led to my wanting to find out about Baroque instruments, and there was nothing written. So I read Michael Praetorius, uh, the Syntagma Musicum, and this is 16, 1618, I believe, uh, when it was written. And it's a huge volume of uh, minutiae about the construction and tuning and use of virtually all known instruments at the period. And then, <laughs> um, after all of the, his writing, he comes to the violin. And he says, um, basically, in a sentence or two, uh, we don't have to talk about the violin. Everybody knows it comes from Poland. Oh, that's interesting. So I speak with professors <laughs> about this. No one knew. I spoke to people in the Philadelphia Orchestra. No one knew. So um, speaking to Menigs, they sent me to Germany to find out. So that started me working toward violin making and making Baroque instruments and studying Baroque instruments. And now, about 60-some uh, years later, 
I'm at Willamette University, uh, continuing to try to answer that question, why Poland? We're getting closer, but we're still working on it. (laughs) And that's in a nutshell what's been going on. And in the meantime, after living in, uh, I was in Europe for quite a number of years, after six years in London, working with Dietrich Kessler in instrument restoration and worked with the Brussels Collection and a few others, we ended up in New York. And there worked with Jacques Francais and René Morel and Louis Bellini and all those folks. And then connected with Gary Sturm, with whom I hope you'll have an opportunity to meet when you're in Washington, because he'll be able to give you a lot of information about axle rods and uh, the acquisitions of instruments at the museum. And so I worked in New York for 50 years, 40 years. So when you started on this path, how old were you when you went to that trip? Um, trip? I was 20 when I chose to go to Germany and and start uh, studying in Mittenwald, a small Alpine community in southern Bavaria. It was one of the historic centers of musical instrument making in the late 17th century and early 18th and beyond. Mirkur in France, another example, uh, Saxony and Saxon makers. What these communities had in common is the regions were polluted with maple and spruce trees and very little else. And it wasn't a particularly agricultural region. And so therefore, musical instrument making caught on and developed a huge body of very highly professional makers. So most people think the violin got its start in northern Italy. Um, As a classical instrument, it did. And this begins with Andrea Amati. About 1555-54 is the first example we have of an instrument that he's made that has all the characteristics of what we view as a modern violin. But uh, clearly, a very similar instrument uh, existed as a medium for folk music. And it was certainly very strong within popular culture. And does this take you back to the Poland connection then? Is that what they mean by the violin comes from Poland? Uh, Not directly. That's a circuitous route. That may be getting wildly too technical for this broadcast and getting into areas that are still being studied. But very briefly, I can say that the the first really serious linkage to uh, relates to bowed string instruments in a variety of forms, thinking of them as viols or rebecs or variety of vertically and horizontally held bowed instruments. And the period in the early 13th century in Santiago de Compostela, the portico there in stone illustrates 24 life-size musicians playing basically bowed instruments. And this is the first example where we have a clear reference to instrument construction and design and style, and a conversational Michelin guide of the region, as an example, would tell people who were going on the pilgrimage to Santiago with the scallop shells uh, around their neck to indicate their pilgrimage. They were advised, if they were nervous of taking money for fear of being waylaid by robbers, they could bring bowed instruments from Poland and Romania because they were very much needed. The French ones are okay, but the Polish and Romanians were the most popular. That's the first reference that we have. So now the task is working back from there to see over Albania how instruments come in from 
probably what we think of as Iran now, but Persia. And it may be linked to a relatively low caste of performers and entertainers from Northwest India who had moved across essentially the path of the Silk Road, ending up in Eastern Europe. But much of that now is still lies in, to a degree in conjecture, but it does have some commonality with the emergence of Romanes and the Roma tradition in Eastern Europe. So this may all link. We know that certainly in the 18th century, uh, Telemann, who was living and writing in Poland, was criticized for spending so much time in taverns. He wasn't, he wasn't an alcoholic. He was there listening to the folk music and documenting it and implying it in his own work. And of course, Vivaldi, his material for string instruments is just littered with what would be um, uh, gypsy music. So that's, uh, that's just a sort of a sidebar <laughs> to instruments. I'm a Celt myself, and from the best I understand, the Celts also were Indo-Europeans that mm-hmm. came across, eventually moving all the way across Europe until they wound up in you know, Brittany and Wales and mm-hmm. Ireland and Scotland, and certainly have a love for the fiddle. Oh, yes. Yeah. You wonder how these connections, how far back they go, where that runs within a people. I suspect that they that they actually precede our uh, imagination. Still, the problem with these early forms of instruments, the kruth uh, that you would have come across, and others, um, the problem with these instruments is defining what does an instrument look like, or what do fragments of a tenth century or ninth century instrument look like. So we don't know. Perhaps that we're looking at fragments of bowed instruments. If we did have a better sense of their geometries, it would tell us an awful lot about evolution. But at any rate, the the first classically constructed violin shows up in Cremona in Italy. And that sort of common information has been verified time and time again. And now with the current new generation of research, into the history and evolution of violin making in Italy, much is being done in terms of not only attributions and authentications of individual instruments, but for the study of organology altogether. With this instrument, particularly going back before Cremona, and again, who could know? But I would just like to know your ideas about this. You have this idea of an instrument that has a part of an animal that the tail in most cases of an animal, for the bow. Do, do you think this was an instrument used within ritual and magical incantations? And how did the, how do you think the ancient mind thought? Oh, of but of course. Uh, I mean, just imagine the heraldic stories of um, warriors in Yugoslavia and the um, guzla as, as a bowed instrument with strings that were also made of horsehair and twisted a number, a particular number of strings would determine the pitch, but it was somewhat of a religious practice of a warrior to go into the woods and select a branch of a tree that had a shape that could be fashioned with very little change into a practical bow. And as every violinist and string player knows, the bow is the vehicle for sound. And so the bow became, as you say, somewhat magical in, in its importance and was the real vehicle for music making. 
I love that uh, scene in uh, Harry Potter the, in the movie where uh, the uh, little Harry's brought into the magic wand shop and he's trying all the magic wands. You know, of course, he's going to find the one that that's his. And uh, it has a part of a feather of phoenix in it or something. But it seemed very similar to sort of the process. I think some musicians go through looking for the right bow. Well, the the instrument is a tool. It's a vehicle for making sound. And your choice of a violin or viola or cello is is based to a very high degree on comfort. You have an idea of sound in your head. You know what you want to do. You know what you would like to hear coming from your music. And your choice of an instrument is going to be that example that gets the sound that you're looking for the easiest. And therefore, you'll find many professional musicians with whom, in listening to them play, you have perhaps only 15 or 20 seconds to actually hear the violin or the viola or the cello. And after that, a performing artist is making conscious and unconscious adjustments in his playing to create the sound that he has in his ear. Therefore, for many people, if there are seven or eight violins on the table, an accomplished player will pick each one of them up, and in just a few seconds, all of them will sound alike. But the bow, the bow is the quest. Most musicians, when they have time, are always seeking that perfect bow that does all of their playing for them and is the most comfortable. And that becomes you know, somewhat you know, of a quest. Many people find it, but uh, there's always the search for the magical bow that does everything. Here's a musical selection played on a Baroque instrument called a viola di amore. It is performed by the Canadian musician and expert on the viola di amore, Thomas Georgi. The violin was everywhere when I was growing up, and it still is today. The sheer variety of music played on the instrument is amazing. So I asked Bill to explain how the violin became so popular. My goodness, in the 17th century, uh, this was the vehicle of intellectuals at court. The peasant class had its folk music, but the divide was huge. But the French Revolution caused the transformation. And now what is emerging in Europe is the beginnings of a middle class. And the middle class now is slowly gaining financial upward mobility. And with the arrival of steam and the Industrial Revolution, now the middle class is developing resources very quickly, and there's nothing to do. Uh, there's no leisure activity. There's no radio. There's no television. There's no communication, telephone hasn't arrived yet. And interestingly enough, a French violin maker named Thibaville in Mircourt had a really curious idea. 
Craftsmanship of all kinds in porcelain and wood and furniture was done by skilled laborers. He had a notion that maybe the new industrial methods might be able to be applied to instrument making. And if so, if they could be instruments could be built in factories by laborers, they might be able to be made very inexpensively and therefore people might want to learn to play music at home. And with that, he started a revolution which brought the general public by the 1880s and 90s into a whole language of house music and playing music at home. And um, just imagine for when your listeners are in New York City and have an opportunity to visit Ellis Island or the Statue of Liberty, uh, have them look again at the iconography, at the photographs of immigrants arriving, no matter how poorly dressed with what few possessions there's a musical instrument, something, a zither, a banjo, a mandolin, or a violin. And these treasured items were part of family communication and uh, led to centers of instrument making in Saxony, in France, in Italy, and certainly in Germany as well. So that's really the inception of all this. It's a fascinating journey. And now you have uh, these new places making these instruments, China particularly. Well, the um, Asian craftsmanship has been uh, admired for generations. And the ability of the Japanese woodworkers to adapt their style of working and to model on European-based musical instruments has been absolutely staggering. And the big beneficiary initially is that now the quality of instruments for students, uh, both in this country and in Europe, has been greatly elevated by the quality of instruments coming from China. So this has led to an accessibility of music in the public school uh, that had been limited in the past with instruments that frankly were not terribly well conceived. But now, very inexpensively, there's a whole plethora of fabulous musical resources for people to use in school, as well as bows. So the sound these orchestras are producing is, is a much higher... Well, you see, if you're going to interest a young person in playing in a musical instrument, one of the first things is, I want to play it because I like the sound. So imagine the frustration for an eight-year-old who wants to play the violin, but it sounds terrible under his ear. And he loses interest and gives up. Now, if he's given a tool that allows him to replicate that sound that a musician is trying to hear as well, and he can do it, well, that's just so exciting. It's going to spur him on and continue his interest in music. So you have at the same time these instruments becoming available that are very affordable and are much higher quality than at that price you could have had in the past. Mm -hmm. Same time, you have this enormous inflation in cost or price for the old Italian violins or the older violins that are considered to be by the old masters where they're getting out of the reach of even the best players in terms of owning them personally. They're owned now often by consortiums and different and banks that will loan them to these players. Do you have any thoughts on that? One of the excitements about um, instrument making in the 21st century is the staggering development 
an understanding of early instrument construction being applied by modern makers and the studies of varnishes and coatings as well as uh, craftsmanship and the minutiae of instrument proportions and constructions now revealed by X-ray and MRI have led to a whole new generation of instrument quality and quite a number of very, very well-known international musicians in many ways prefer their modern instrument to the old one, which now is becoming somewhat tired and somewhat quirky. The modern instrument is more reliable in terms of maintenance and care and also projects easier, realizing that 17th century instruments require rather a lot of physical work to make them play and certainly to project in a hall with 3,000 people in attendance. And of course, pitch is also going up. And so now most orchestras in the United States are at um, between 441 and 43 in pitch. Marin Alsop with the Baltimore's at 43. And that increase in pitch, I think probably mirrors in a sense our aesthetic for sound with the... Um, and I'm not quite sure how to describe it, but the the character of sound that people listen to on their cell phones or their iPods is clipping the lower register. And so it may be leading to a whole change in the aesthetic taste that people have for sound and for listening to music. But certainly for you know, modern uh, classical performance, pitch is rising. And in doing so, of course, it makes it more accessible to larger audiences. It's fascinating. I had no idea. Oh, really? No idea. Of course, I'm a folk musician, but I never heard this. Oh, yeah. So you're at 440. All the time. Yeah. Well, you might be. Um, it's interesting to think about pitch and pitch and its influence in sound. Of course, in the circle of keys in music theory, minor keys, of course, have a different emotional setting than major keys. And Many would argue that F-sharp major has a different sound than G-sharp major, and, and so on and so forth. But in the 17th century, tuning was a real problem. Most instruments were made and tuned to the community organs, which did have, of course, fixed pitch. So if you were to be playing under Vivaldi in Venice, you would have been at 465. But in with Marin Marais at the French court in 1700, you would have been at 392. In London, you were at about 405 or 410. And the 415 that people use in Baroque performance is just an adapted mean uh, tuning. And each of these have a different color. When you listen to Vivaldi at 465, you get a whole different sense of the fireworks and spontaneity of his music, or listening to uh, Moray or others of French composers at the beginning of the 18th century, you get a completely different sense about the languid breadth of sound that one gets at 392. The transmission of folk traditions and folk music is always uh, oral and audible purely sensory. But um, in the 16th and 17th centuries, bowed instrument players uh, wanted to experiment with different tunings and different pitches. And they were doing those changes in pitch 
by using a notation uh, called tablature, which simply was a diagram telling you where to put your finger on the fingerboard to play a particular note. And that way you could tune your instrument in thirds or fourths or fifths. It wouldn't really matter. And so for the viola da gamba, there was a whole class of music uh, that was devoted to the lira way or playing with different tunings. You're talking about the Industrial Revolution, and I've thought about the fact that time used to be different in different villages before the invention of the railroad. It's almost like tuning to the local organ. It might be 315 in one town, and the next town it could be 330. It could be off by 15 minutes, 20 minutes. And by the time you walked to that town, then you were in that time. You never even thought about it. And then when the train started to run, they had to all be on the same time. So you start to get the beginning of, a, of a, an accepted universal time standard. And I guess this also happened in the world yes, of music. precisely. And, and central time was facilitated in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, by the Hamilton Watch Company that created the railroad watch. And that was critically important to the emergence and development of early railroads because on a single track, trains had to run both directions. So it was absolutely critical to know what time it was so a train would get off onto a siding and then prevent head-on collisions. And this is exactly what was happening in music, that for a performer of a fixed-pitched instrument, basically like a wind or brass, their choices in the 17th and 18th century was to play on instruments that were local to the town in which they were playing, because the instruments had to be fashioned in particular tunings. And so in a, in a situation where a married couple are at court, your wife may work in the kitchens and your job is to be a musician and you're both fed and housed and you would play the instrument upon which you were told to play. And really until well into the 17th century, the only way you knew what music to use, you would look at all the music handed to musicians and you would choose one that was in your clef. And you would play one of four parts, treble, alto, tenor, or bass. It's not until toward the end of the 17th century that composition now includes information and instructions on which instruments are to play which line of music. And that then ties in with the notion of pitch and temperament and tuning, and then the colors of sound produced uh, by even the same instrument, but in different registers and with different tunings. So tell me about how you started your shop and what that experience was like. Well, I'd been working um, in restoration at uh, Jacques Francais in Midtown, New York, and we were working with the principal players of the Philharmonic and uh, in the, the general modern music theater. And uh, Jacques was very much, as it were, like a father to me. Um, he knew I was very interested in Baroque music, and therefore, I was working with Baroque players when I arrived in the United States and continued to. And after being uh, with Jacques Francais for about six years, I became very involved with the Metropolitan Museum and the Smithsonian and with uh, Baroque players. And I just became so overwhelmed with it that I decided to leave and, and work on my own. And the offices were on Staten Island, very close to the Staten Island Ferry. Why'd you pick Staten Island? Trees, space, 
good schools at the time for children. Cornelius Vanderbilt, when he arrived in the United States, uh, emigrated to Staten Island, and one of his early ventures was rowing people to Manhattan. Rosie. <laughs> I love that. That led to the Staten Island Ferry, which he ultimately donated to the city uh, if they were guaranteed to keep the price of the ferry boat five cents for 50 years. I'm so in love with ferries myself. And there is a hornpipe called the Staten Island Hornpipe, which has a little part in it, which is clearly the, the ferry boat whistle. This idea of these, these wonderfully gifted musicians living in Manhattan, performing in Manhattan, but to get their instruments fixed, get on the ferry, go to here, go across the water to get their instruments taken care of. Well, perhaps a few of them. <laughs> yeah, I, I like that idea a lot. Uh, while we're talking about this, tell me a little bit more about Jacques, who he was and how important he was in the world of, of the violin in New York at that time. I've heard other things about him. Um, Jacques was a success story of a tradition of craftsmanship in France. The two centers, uh, the cultural center, of course, in Paris, but the craft center was in Mircourt. So there was always a divide between the craftsmanship and the quality and the manufacturing in Mircourt, which was then translated into commercial dealing in Paris. And, and Jacques uh, came from the family of Caressa through his father and came to the United States to work with, uh, uh, at Rembert Wurlitzer with uh, Fernando Socconi and then ultimately opened his own shop in, in Midtown and became the locus, really, of musicians in the city. Um, the contribution that Jacques Francais made was to become a mentor to very, very many young instrument makers and young aspirants to study historical instruments. And it was from that shop, probably more than any other in the United States, that was the crucible for some of the greatest contemporary uh, makers of new instruments, who all got the, the exposure, as I had done, working with the highly important 17th and 18th century instruments. So I think one would attribute to Jacques the current success of American modern violin making, perhaps more so now than anywhere else in Europe. So what did he bring to that that enabled him to do that? What, what? He had a conception that rather than slavishly duplicate and, and rework the models and style of instruments in Cremona, he tried to encourage people um, expanding their imaginative making and to incorporate various, um, although minute, but various design and sound changes that was eye-opening for many people who thought that one had to slavishly copy Stradivari to uh, the tiniest detail. He was suggesting to young makers who were working for him, why don't you abandon those tight restrictions and open your mind to thinking beyond uh, the limits of 17th century making? And how did young violin makers work with him? Would they work in his shop or were they working in their own shops? And then Oh, no, th this was... Uh, this was people like myself who were drawn to the firm 
to be able to study and work with old instruments. And with Rene Morel and Louis Bellini, had really the, the, one of the most advanced restoration facilities in the world. So the restoration that is grew out of the legacy from Rembert Wurlitzer and Sicconi uh, that was also in New York previously. Give the listener, if you would, a definition of what you mean by Baroque instrument. For someone who doesn't really understand how that differs from the violin as we know it. The violin as we know it emerges with four strings tuned in fifths, uh, G, D, A, and E. Uh, that remains the same, although there are pitch tuning differences. But in the 16th century, the violin had a competitor, which was called the viola da gamba. And that was a six-string bowed instrument played between the legs. Hence, viola or instrument or bowed instrument, da gamba, on the legs. And it was a larger family of instruments than that of the violin. Um, there were seven members. The tiniest was called a partisu and played in France at the beginning of the 18th century and was about the size of a violin, but it was played on the lap, primarily by young ladies at court. And it was unseemly for them to play the violin, for one. And secondly, if they tilted their head to hold the violin, their wig would fall off. The largest one, you know, because it's the orchestral bass. And that classical form of basses is that of the viola da gamba. And in the 16th century, it was called a violone and had six strings. And then the viola da gamba family had both seven-string basses, six-string basses, and tenors and trebles, and they were whole orchestras of those instruments. And when they played together, they were called a consort. And an open consort would be playing with recorders or other instruments and the viola da gamba. A closed consort was just the viola da gamba alone in different sizes. And it was an instrument that had immense intellectual interest. And in particularly, its greatest heyday was that in England in the 17th century with the legendary composers of Byrd and Jenkins and Purcell and others, and at court, it was favored very much higher than the, than the violin. In fact, the violin, in, according to Henry VIII, was a, considered to be a rude folk instrument that sounded like the guts of a cat being rinsed from its body, which may, in fact, be the origin of what we commonly think strings are made of cat gut. Actually, to talk about Baroque instruments, one needs to think about evolution. And one needs to realize that the, the history of music is really governed by musicians. Musicians who demand instruments from instrument makers. And no, I'm sorry, it's too big, I can't play this. No, it's too small, I, I can't wrap my hands around it. No, the strings are too far apart. My fingers won't hit the strings. And on and on until a successful instrument is created. And now the musician shares his skills with others. And they form groups and attract composers and conductors. And the composer says, good heavens, Joe, I had no idea that you could make that sound on your instrument. So two weeks later on Joe's music stand shows up stuff that he has absolutely no idea to play, 
terrified, he goes back to the instrument maker and says, look it, you've got to fix my instrument because I can't play this music. And so the evolution of instruments is really a circular canon from the musician, who is the center of it all, through the imagination of composition and to the practical craftsmanship of instrument makers. And so when one thinks of the Baroque, one's thinking about an evolution of music, and that evolution is guided and strongly influenced by technology. The single most important one is that of the strings. In the 17th century and 16th century, all of the strings of bowed instruments as well as plucked instruments were made of lamb or sheep gut. And it was really at the end of the 17th century that uh, a new technology emerged, and it was to wrap the gut with wire, which increased its mass and allowed instruments to be built at lower pitches with smaller size. And that new instrument technology allowed makers to experiment with a whole new form of musical instrument concepts, like the viola de more, small violas, the cello is reduced in size. And in the beginning of the 19th century, Louis Spohr, the great pedagogue and soloist, realized that he would be able to play more musically by being able to vibrate with his left hand on every note. And by doing that, vibrato, which earlier had been an ornament, like a trill, now he suggests being able to vibrate on every note. The problem is how to hold the violin. So he invents what he calls the violin holder, which we all call a chin rest. And so that allowed the body of the instrument to be clamped to a person's shoulder so that his left hand was free, and that led to modern changes in technology. And that led into the classical period of instrument composition that explored the technical ability and virtuosity region of of the instrument. And uh, just as an aside, uh, just for you guys, um, Spohr also indicates in his violin school of uh, 1828, he also indicates that um, if you want to get a really good G string for your violin, play on an A string for a couple of weeks, and then you take it to the violin maker to have a G string made. And you have to do this because the violin makers are all crooks and they use cheap gut. And this way you get decent gut on your (laughs) G-string. And he writes that in the middle of the book to students on how to play the violin. Great guy, Louis. Bill Monaco provided me with a great overview of the evolution of the violin, but I was curious if he had a story about a particular instrument that might have come through his shop. There was a marvelous piece in The New Yorker a number of years ago, uh, absolutely fabulous. uh, Viola de More came to to us in the process of uh, restoration. When we opened it, we found that there were excretions all over the inside of the instrument. 
and not knowing what the excretions were, I took them over to the Museum of Natural History and showed them to an entomologist. And the woman <laughs> spoke to me, asked me where I lived. And I said, New York. And she said, you've never seen a cockroach. And it turns out that the instrument was completely encrusted with cockroach dung. And the label I'd already removed uh, to conserve the paper. So she had no idea what the instrument was and wouldn't have known a viola de mori anyway. But in five minutes, this entomologist verified the whole provenance of the instrument because it, it was made by Thomas Eberly in uh, Naples in around 1774. And she suggested that the instrument had come in the late 19th century in a cargo ship to Boston because evidently sailors, Italian sailors particularly at that time, were virtually in a state of mutiny um, because the roach-infested boats, uh, the roaches were eating their eyebrows at night as they slept. And the destination was the Boston area. And it turns out that ichneumon wasps that are local to Boston would fly out to meet oncoming boats because they knew there was this fertile harvest of cockroaches aboard. And inside the instrument, there were uh, ichneumon wasp egg casings. And in fact, the instrument was from Naples. Um, I became aware of it in Boston and was told that it arrived from Italy at the, toward the end of the 19th century. And so it all tied together absolutely marvelously. And that's, it's in the hands of, of, of the most uh, prominent authority and virtuoso of the Viola de More, uh, which is Tom Georgie. Uh, up in Tafel Music in Toronto, but the, that instrument uh, got a lot of <laughs> got a lot of comment, and and was immense fun. Actually, a, a, a fabulous sounding thing. Other than that, the the exciting instruments for me are ones that produce a, a musical quality that excites an audience, and that is uh, that is the payoff in in the work that I do. It, it's not necessarily the engagement of the performer, but it's the reaction of his audience and the accolades that he receives is, is what's very exciting for me. Here is another musical selection played on the viola de more by Thomas Georgie. It is, in fact, played on the very same instrument that once was home to a family of cockroaches. Many people associate the violin with gypsies. Maybe you saw the film The Red Violin. There's a family of gypsies who play a part in the journey of that remarkable instrument. So what is the connection between the Romani and the violin? How did it come about? It's very, very clear that they had a huge influence 
in the 18th century in, in, in music and in performance. Not so much in England. They were more derided as tinkers in England, and, and they certainly never had any influence on court music that I know of. But we've been working with Romani historians. The problem is that the, the, the Romani, as nomadic people, do not have a strong oral history. And so they know virtually nothing about their antecedents. They know nothing about how they ended up in Europe. And the conventional wisdom is now suggesting that the Romani didn't get to Eastern Europe until 14th century. But um, if the, the Compostela, I can show you the, the, um, the Compostela uh, in, um, in Santiago, and you look at those images, and, and here they're already saying that the tradition of bowed instrument making is being done in Eastern Europe. But to say when gypsies embrace the violin, I have absolutely no idea, but they come from evidently a background of what would be entertainers and musicians in Northwest India. And this is um, going back to about 800 or 900 AD. So I was thinking, you're saying Santiago in Spain. I was thinking about the Moorish influence, the Arab, were there Bodins? Well, you see, the, um, the uh, where I wasn't going is in, in this whole area of, of work that I'm doing, because a lot of it is still needs a lot of footnoting. But essentially, the catalyst is the Sephardic expulsion in 1492. What that did, it brought instrument makers and musicians who were skilled with viola da gamba to Venice. The Italians never really embraced the viola da gamba seriously. But the court of Henry VIII was very, very interested, and they sent diplomats to Venice to literally try to, and they did, bring Spanish Jewish musicians to London to fertilize the court with both music and with instruments. And that leads, in the end, probably closely in time to the arrival of Ignatius of Loyola. And St. Ignatius founded the Jesuit order. And the Jesuits, as was the case with Gregor, who used folk music and folk tunes to be rewritten with religious texts that became chant and were attractive to the general public because they knew this music already, it's quite likely that what Ignatius was doing was embracing the popularity of the violin and using it as part of their education. There was a, a teaching order and in the beginnings of, uh, of uh, religious plays. And it's likely that the Jesuits were the catalyst for the sudden popularity and explosion of the violin in Italy, in, in northern Italy. And that was preceded by, in, I guess it would be about um, 1508, in Fusen in Germany, uh, a meeting was held at creating guilds of lute makers. And they were doing that to combat quality problems among craftsmen as a teaching institution and to control pricing. And they then founded a lute guild which dispersed throughout Europe. 
And so when the violin emerges, now there is a whole series of highly trained, skilled craftsmen who are able to bend materials and work in ornament and design, and particularly for Germanic instrument making in the 18th century. It's very common to see makers labeling their instruments, indicating that they are lute and violin makers, or violin and lute makers. So the confluence of the arrival of the classical violin, the Jesuits' interest in promoting violins as a vehicle, and of course they end up in Uruguay 10 years later, and they're beginning to teach the natives, the Indians, to make musical instruments, and later develop a school for instrument making in Mexico City. And so all of that, I think, ties together into that cauldron and leads to the question of why Del Jesu, uh, Grenary Del Jesu's labels bear the IHS inscription, which is the Jesuit symbol. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin the Bow project and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. <laughs>